This is session three of our men's conference, and we've been talking about fatherlessness and fatherhood. And uh, in the notes on your table, there's a second page here, and this I have the notes for our second session with me this morning. We've been looking at this scripture uh, that is found in First Timothy, uh, or I'm sorry, First Corinthians chapter four, fifteen, that says, "Though you have ten thousand instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus." I have begotten you through the gospel. Paul sensed that he was a father and he saw one of the uh, allegorical and, um, and uh, metaphorical phrases that he used is that, uh, that the church was like his children. And he said, through the gospel, through the seed that I sown, you were birthed. First Corinthians chapter 4, 15 in the New English translation, it says there uh, that, that uh, though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see, you do have 10,000 instructors in Christ. And Pastor John just did a marvelous, I took lots of notes on how the media just wants to be one of our guides today. Public media, public forums, social networks. And friends, it's interesting that though we have 10,000 instructors in Christ, countless guides, we have not many fathers. Now, fathers are important because the New King James uh, says in Proverbs chapter 1 and 8, My son, my son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. We found out that my son, when God says that to you, when you hear in your prayer time, your meditation time, your reading time, my son, that term is a relational, intimate, and personal term. God could call us anything, but he chooses to call us his sons. And fatherlessness is the sin of today. We looked at about six different categories that statistics are now saying that when there's not a father in the home, children without father in the home live at a 47.6% higher rate of poverty. When there's no father in the home, drugs and alcohol abuse, there's a greater and a higher risk for children with drug and alcohol abuse. When there's uh, with, with a father in the home, in terms of emotional and physical health, that, that, that there's fewer incidents of externalizing and internalizing a behavior that would be negative. When there's a father in the home, educational achievement is significantly higher. When there's a father in the home, there's a less likelihood of uh, children engaging in delinquency. And without fathers concerning sexual activity, teen pregnancy, Teens find themselves at a higher risk uh, of uh, teen pregnancy and marrying someone with less than a high school degree when there's no fathers in the home. Fathers are important. In our first session, we looked at a father as a man, and that is that you have a dominion mandate. We looked at a father as a mentor, that you have a responsibility to pass it on. And then a father is a model, that there ought to be qualities and characteristics in us that need to be imitated. Let's look on now in this particular session. A father as a minister. Write that one down. Because many of us, we see our pastors and our pastoral staff and sometimes our musicians as ministers, but we don't see ourselves as a father as a minister. And a father as a minister simply is that you are the chief worship leader in the home. The chief worship leader in the home. Now, when we talk about worship... Get out of your mind that you have to play an instrument and sing. I don't expect to walk in all your homes and see a keyboard, a microphone, and a PA system set up 
uh, in your space and that you are the chief worship leader in the home as as one that leads everybody in singing an instrument. But a father first ministry is to their home. I believe that you and I are not even qualified to lead in the house in the church until we have first become a minister, a servant in worship at home. In fact, when Paul was writing to Timothy and he writes about bishops, he said, man, a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife. And he gives all these qualities. And he said, one that rules well his own house. One of the translations said he manages well his own home. And then it makes this parenthetical statement. It says, now, if a man doesn't know how to rule his house, how can he take care of the church of God? A lot of men like to skip qualifiers. They want to preach to the church. Don't want to take care of the home. And, and I used to raise questions to God when I'm reading and meditating on the Bible. And have you ever thought about why God went to Ur of the Chaldeans and out of all the people in the earth, he goes to an idol and a polytheistic worshiping nation and he finds one man, Abraham, and he calls this Chaldean out and says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. Why him? Well, Genesis chapter 18, verse number 19 may give us an insight into Abraham, Father Abraham. And in 1819, in the New King James Version, it says, I have known him in order that he may that that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has spoken to him. Abraham was a model and commanded his family in daily worship. Do you know that the first time the term worship is used? Uh, we watch Abel worshiping God, but the first term, that time we see the word worship used is when Abraham is going up that track up Mount Moriah with Isaac. And he says, where are we going? He said, we're going to the mountain yonder to worship and to return. Yeah, yeah. And Abraham took on responsibility for leading his household in worship. You see, I believe that true daily worship is to know him and to respond to him on a daily basis. And I believe that men ought to be the chief worship leader in their home. I believe that as you grow in Christ, you ought to be the go-to person for spiritual matters in your home. Amen. That when people have spiritual questions, that they come to the man, the father in the house. I have my grandkids ask me, spiritual questions. They have a dad that is adequate in answering, but they'll say, Paul, Paul, tell me about this. My son, my daughter, they ask spiritual questions because it's important that we establish ourselves as spiritually. You can do that by simply leading prayer in your home. I believe that it's important that before you lead pray, you pray. Before you lead prayer, you pray. So develop your own personal prayer life, your own intimate time with the Lord on a daily basis where you talk to God. Before you talk to your kids about God, talk to God about your kids. Before you talk to your kids about God, talk to God about your kids. And friends, I believe that that's that intimate time where we get to know him and he begins to know us. I believe in praying for your wife. And uh, Stormy O'Mardian wrote a marvelous book called The Power of a Praying Wife. Then she came back behind it uh, and said, uh, let's look at this and have the power of the praying husband. And, and when I looked at that book, The Power of a Praying Husband, she covered all kind of areas that a woman needs to be covered in prayer, areas I didn't even think about. And I think it's important that we pray for our wives. We talk to God about our kids. 
before we talk to our kids about God, we pray for our wife. And then I think it's important that you develop a pattern of praying with your spouse if you're married. Pray with them. Because prayer produces intimacy. Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole says that you become intimate with the God you pray to. You become intimate with people you pray with. And you become intimate with people that you pray for. I find it fascinating that the first time I went in the early 90s to the Dominican Republic, I went to that nation and I began to do ministry there. And people said that they were just surprised that a pastor would leave a church in America and come and minister to these small Pentecostal churches in the Dominican Republic. And when I was there preaching, one of the pastors asked me one day, what really brought you here? And I said, I've been intimate with your nation since I was a teenager. I said, you see, around the mid-60s, I said, Dominican Republic was engaged in the Civil War. And I said, and my Sunday school teacher had sons that were in the U.S. Army, and the U.S. Army was talking about invading the U.S. military forces. And I said, that Sunday school teacher, all during my junior high school years, had us praying for our boys that were in Dominican Republic or getting ready to be dispatched. I said, I started praying for your nation in junior high school, and I said, and now I'm a man in my 40s, and I'm coming into your nation. I had developed an intimate connection with that nation way before my feet ever touched there. Prayer produces intimacy. And friends, as a worship leader in our home, or as a chief worship leader in our home, I believe that we want to know him and then want everyone in our home to know him. I put down Philippians 3 and 10 that says in the Amplified, and this is Paul speaking, this was his cry. He says, listen, for my determined purpose is that I might know him. Friends, if there's anything that we want to do, what is the chief purpose of men to know him and glorify him eternally? Watch this now, that I might know him. And then I put it in bold print for my own emphasis. The parenthetical statement says that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly and that I may and, and that I may in the same way come to know the power the overflowing of his resurrection which it exerts over believers and that I may also share in his sufferings as so to be continually transformed in the spirit of his likeness, even to his death. And in that hope, I want to know him. And I found out something about being the chief worship leader in my home. I found out that every time I think I got my arms around understanding God, he breaks out and he's bigger than that. God is so inexhaustible is the word I use now. He's an inexhaustible God that every time I think I know something about him, I found out he's more than that. And I've discovered now in my journey as a worship leader in God in my home, uh, that is what you learn after you know everything that really counts. You ever meet some dudes that just know everything? I begin to look at them and say, it's what you learn after you learn know everything that really counts. And every time I think I have my arms around God, who he is, the inexhaustible God shows himself as more than that. When I was a sinner and I came, was confronted with my sin. Oh, just to know him as a savior. One that would save me from sin and save me from the devil and save me from hell was all I needed. But when I got sick, he says, I'm bigger than just your savior. 
I'm your healer. And then I looked at that and I began to know him as healer, learned all these healing scriptures in the Bible. And then when I needed power, he said, but I'm more than just a healer. I'm your baptizer with the Holy Spirit. And I began to know him as powerful. Then when I couldn't pay my bills and I knew him as powerful, he said, but I'm also more than that. I'm your provider. And then I began to know him as that. And then sometime when I felt like I was all alone because I was standing and fighting the good fight of faith, I found out he's my sustainer in a time of battle. I would have lost my mind, thought I was going crazy. And yet I found out that he is a sustainer. And I found out I just want to know you, that I might want to know you, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of your person more strongly and more clearly. You see, Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole said that a father is the priest, prophet, and king in the home. As a priest, you know, you learn how to romance God and lead the family in worship. And whatever your worship pattern needs to be, whether it's prayer, whether it's study, all of that is worship. Whether it's just living out the word, that's worship. And Paul expands our worship and says your worship is presenting your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable worship. Friends, it's to know him in a more deeply, deeper and intimate way It's to know him in worship. I'm a priest. I'm a prophet. I speak for God in my home. Now, not everything that comes out of my mouth is prophecy. But when I speak the word of the Lord, people hear God. I speak for God to the family. I'm the priest. I worship God. I'm the prophet. I speak on behalf of God. And I'm the king. I'm a ruler. And my ruler means I manage the house well. Isn't it interesting when we look at a guy like Adam? God gives him a prophecy. You're going to have dominion over the earth. And then, you know, the first thing that God does for him puts him in a garden. Wait a minute, God. You said I was going to have all this. And then you give me that. And God says, Adam, if you can rule the garden, you'll have the earth. Adam screwed it up. He couldn't take care of his garden. Never achieved being a ruler over the earth. Somebody say, thank God for the last Adam, though. Because came along the last Adam. And when the last Adam came, whose name was Jesus, not only did he rule himself in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, not only did he take care and manage well the 12 that the Lord assigned to him, but he went to the grave, he rose on the third day, and when he got up, he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And the last Adam took care of ruling well his own house. Therefore, he's qualified to rule the earth. And so as a man, we are, as a minister, the chief worship leader in our home. Number two, I think it's also critically important. As a father, I'm also a man of God. Look at the man next to you and say, thank God you're a man. Now tell him, thank God you're a man of God. Yeah, a man of God is the chief resource for spiritual guidance in the home. Not only do I lead worship, but I'm the chief, chief resource for spiritual guidance. Watch this. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 13, we find this word written. He says, listen, in 2.13, I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you children because... 
you have known the Father. Here he writes unto the fathers because the fathers understand the chronicles of God. They understand God's panoramic view. And fathers are men of God that understand the eternal purposes of God. I mean, think about the eternal purposes of God as I understand them. About 4,000 B.C., God speaks in the earth and he says, let us bring forth man after our image and after our likeness. God brings forth the human race, male and female, Adam, and they come forth and they begin to establish in the earth. And we're not too far into the new creation realities, not too far from 4,000 B.C., but sin enters in in Genesis 3. When sin enters in from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the last chapter of the Revelation, the entire book that you and I read is nothing but remedy for somebody listening to the wrong voice. The two perfect chapters are Genesis 1 and 2. From Genesis 3 to the end of the Revelation is nothing but a first aid book, a medical book to fix what somebody broke by listening to the new voice. A new voice came in. It's a wrong voice. A man falls. Then God begins to deal. From Noah, we get our, uh, our we learn grace. From Abraham, 2000 B.C., God says, now I want you to understand that the way that you approach to me is faith. Abraham begets Isaac. Isaac, we learn the thing of submission. He begets Jacob. Jacob, we learn transformation. He begets Joseph. We learn the whole ideal of suffering and glory. He begets, uh, he begets, uh, 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 he stands in about 1400 BC, a man named Moses comes along. And Moses teaches us how to worship. He lives 120 years. And then all of a sudden, Joshua comes 1280 BC, it is now. And all of a sudden, Joshua teaches us how to warfare. About 1000 B.C., after a series of judges and kings, all of a sudden, David rises to the throne. About 1000 B.C., and he teaches us how to rule. Joshua took us into the land, but David secured the land by driving out the Philistines. David then rules that he wants to build a temple, and David dies, and Solomon, his son, builds the temple. The temple is now established, and now people are flocking into the nation, but when Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes over. Just talking about fathers know him that's from the beginning, and Rehoboam listens to young advice rather than old advice. He listens to modern wisdom rather than old wisdom, and all of a sudden, the kingdom is divided. Both kingdoms do sin in the sight of God and about, and they divide the kingdom, and ten kingdoms stay in the north, and they form Israel. Two tribes stay in the south, and they form Judah. And both sin in the sight of God. 722 B.C. it is now. And all of a sudden Assyria comes in and takes the northern kingdom captive. Ten tribes go away. They disappear. Never heard from again. And even today they're finding the lost tribes of Israel that are being repatriated to Israel now. They disappear. The southern kingdom lasts a little bit longer. About about 586 B.C. And then all of a sudden Jerusalem falls. And now everyone's in Babylonian captivity as it was described in our previous session, and then they're overrun by the Persian. Yet God did not leave them with a prophetic word. God is not done with his people. God tells them, if you go into captivity, you'll be there 70 years. And 70 years, all of a sudden, that same man, Daniel, is reading through the writings, and he reads, man, if we go into captivity, we'll be there 70 years. But reading without prayer does nothing. He begins to pray for 21 days and God says, this is the time I'm going to release. And all of a sudden there's a release, Zerubbabel, Haggai, and Zechariah returned to the land and they rebuilt the temple. A few years later, Ezra comes back to the temple, comes back to the land and he restores the truth. 
He's a scribe and he reads the truth. 444 B.C. it is now Nehemiah comes back and reestablishes the law. Now Israel's back in the land and people are coming back in the land and the walls and the gates are restored and temple worship. And that lasts for the next 300 years. But by the time of the writing of Malachi, Israel has fallen into its old ways again. The Malachi rises up and warns them and says, listen, you need to turn from your wicked ways. You need to exhibit true worship. And then he ends the book of the Old Testament period by saying something like this. Listen, I'm going to send Elisha the prophet because God is not finished with his people and he never leaves us without a prophetic voice and he says I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. There's in that intertestamental period of time where about 400 years of silence and about 3 BC all of a sudden a little guy named John the Baptist is running around the streets. He grows up and he goes out in the Judean wilderness. He should have been in the temple. And he say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of a sudden, somebody comes and they're standing in line. I hate lines, but I would have liked to have been in this line. <laughs> and one day he comes up and somebody's in line. I hate lines because all kind of people are in line. I hate lines because people think they know you when they're in line. There's people that don't even know you start talking to you when you're in line. But this time, this is a different kind of line because here comes one standing in line and John knew who it was. He knew it was because he, his mother had met John's mother in the womb, John had leaped. And when Jesus steps out on the scene in his public ministry, he baptizes him. And the one that John had been heard from heaven, the Holy Ghost comes upon him, remains. This is the one he baptizes him. And the whole Godhead comes together at this baptism. The father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Holy Ghost manifests itself like a dove descends upon him. And then the ministry of Jesus about 30 A.D. begins and 33 A.D. goes to a cross. He suffers, he bleeds, he dies, he's buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. He rises again, shows himself for 40 days with many infallible proofs. He ascends on high and now we're into the days of the church, the book of Acts, because God is not done with his church. Book of Acts lasts about 30 years. It lasts from 33 A.D. to about 64 A.D. And we see apostles. The major figure is Peter, Acts 1 through 12, and then Acts 13 through the end of the book is Paul. And they take the gospel to all the known world, and God is not done with his church yet. The last of the apostles dies on the island all by himself. John, they tried to boil him, wouldn't boil. Tried to kill him, wouldn't die. Some people just stubborn like that. Look at your neighbor and say, you need to be stubborn like that too. You need to be stubborn. And so they put him out on a, they, they put him out on a little island just to get rid of him. Look at your neighbor and tell him, you can't keep a good man down. Man, on the Lord's day, he gets in the spirit. And God shows him things that were, things that are, and things to come. Writes messages to the church because God is not done with his people and never leaves us without a prophetic voice. We then go through a period of time when John dies about 90 to 100 A.D. John now passes off the scene. We're finished with all the original apostles. And now a series of bishops come in and are overseers. And the church experiences great persecution for about 200 years. But about 315 A.D., a man named Constantine sees a vintage, a vision of conquering in this sign, conquering in this name. And now there's an edict of tolerance sign. And now Christianity becomes acceptable. We now move into the ages of the dark ages where the church of Rome is formed and we start getting beliefs and practices that were not part of traditional the first hundred years of Christianity. 
And we call it the dark ages, but God is not done with his church. 15, 17, a little priest is reading through the scrolls. And he's been trying to get penance and get right before God, climbing up the state, up the steps. And all of a sudden, the revelation comes to him. The just shall live by faith. His name is Martin Luther. And all of a sudden, faith starts getting restored to the church. All of a sudden, somebody starts reading through in the 1600s, about 100 years later, and they find out not only do you need to be justified, but you need to live holy. All of a sudden, people start examining the church's baptismal practices. In the 1700s, the great emphasis is restoring baptism by immersion. Because when you bury somebody, uh, man, you don't put sprinkle a little dirt on their head. You dig a hole, put them down in it, and bury them, cover them up. And the Anabaptists experienced strong persecution, both in Europe and in England. And they come over to this section of the world that we call the West. They called it the New World to experience religious freedom. That's some of the foundations of the nation where because God was not finished with his church. 1800, the Wesleyan brother said, it's not only important that you have clergy that minister the word, but you need to equip the laity. And we start finding this whole equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. 1900s, God said, it's time to get some power back in the church. And in Topeka, Kansas, and in Kansas City, and in Azusa, all of a sudden there's this great wave of Pentecost like they experienced in the book of Acts, and it comes upon God's church. All of a sudden there's a latter rain that's poured out in 1940, and then all of a sudden we see all these blazing evangelists under the power of the Holy Ghost like Billy Sunday and Billy Graham. They come forth and we see evangelists restored. In the 1960s, we see there's a great emphasis on pastoral ministry. 1970s, when I came into the baptism of the Holy Ghost, a great emphasis on teaching ministry. People where the evangelists would come in and sweat and do miracles and have on shiny suits and shiny shoes and all that kind of stuff. These teachers like Kenneth Copeland and Pop Price and, 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 uh, and, and, and Dr. Hagen, they were staying flat-footed, not even break a sweat. Signs and wonders and miracles and faith and people taking notes. 1980, God began to emphasize prophets and 1990s apostles. And now it's the era of the kingdom where the kingdom of God that's made up of every nation, every kindred, every tongue and every people is being raised up. And we are the church because God is not finished with his people. And now we're looking as we press into this age for a God that's coming. And he's coming again, man. Can somebody say amen? He's coming again and he's coming again without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Listen, just a few people we were one day. Then we merged and we grew to 3,000. And then daily people added into the church. And now we've gone global in the absence of our king, but with the power that he's given us. God loved the world that he gave us Jesus. Jesus loved the church and he gave us the Holy Holy Ghost. And fathers are people that understand the panoramic view of God. What is God after? And you've just had a brief history of world history and church history and all of that. And men, you need to know what's going on. Because it's one thing to know your Irish history. It's another thing to know your Scottish history. It's another thing to know your American history. It's another thing to know your African and African-American history. It's another thing to know your spiritual history. And I write unto you fathers. Because I believe that the fathers ought to be the man of God in the house. And we understand the eternal purposes of God. 
And what is God after? God never leads his people without a prophetic voice. God never leads his people without a sound. And what is God after? A father, as a man of God, understands the eternal purpose of God. And Hebrews chapter 10, 2 verse 10 tells us what God is after. It says, and it became him of whom are all things and by whom are all things. It became him also in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. I believe that God still has one eternal purpose. He wants to bring all of his sons to glory. He wants to see you maximize and bear the weight and the purpose that he birthed you for in the earth. Not only does God call us as the minister in the home, as a father, but as the man of God, the spiritual guide. And friends, I want to just get as many people on the path. I watched a movie. Some of you may have seen it. Some of you did not. It was called, by Denzel Washington was a star. It was called the book of Eli. When I watch the book of Eli, I'm sitting in the movie. You, you go to a movie sometimes, just try to figure out what in the world's going on. And I didn't, I know not watch a movie, but enough people in my church are saying, pastor, you just got to go see this. I said, well, what's it about? I can't tell you. Just go see it. So I'm going to watch this. And I pick up this line. I got to stay on the path. Look at your neighbor and say, I got to stay on the path. Tell them, stay on the path. Stay on the path, man. Listen, listen. If you got to kill somebody, stay on the path. No, no, no. Listen, listen. Stay on the path. If you got to go through a fight, stay on the path. When you get shot, stay on the path. When you get distracted, stay on the path. If other people get off the path, stay on the path. And what I took away, that was my takeaway. I tried to get a takeaway from movies. And so we started running around the church. I said, you still on the path? Yeah, man, I'm on the path. And friends, that's one of the purposes I have in life and that you should have in bringing many sons together. Glory, get them on the path and then make each other accountable. Still on the path? Look at the man next to you and say, you still on the path? Because this man has something inside of him he had to deliver to some other men. And you need to stay on the path because there's something inside of you. You need to deliver to another man. It could be for the salvation of a nation. It could be for the salvation of the world. Stay on the path. Stay on the path. You see, his, his yoke is easy and his burden light. But his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And friends, you and I, we need to stay on the path. We are, as a father, the minister in the home, the chief worship leader. We are, as a father, we are the man of God, the chief resource for spiritual guidance. And finally, as a father, a father is a mighty man, is willing to fight for his marriage, fight for his family, and fight for his children. Now, friends, I found out something in Columbus, Ohio. I don't know if it happens up here in New England. But sometimes when men become Christians, they lose their fight. Now, I know that you shouldn't be a brawler because even the qualifications for a bishop in the Lord's churches, he can't be one that's just given to violence. He can't be a brawler. But, friends, I believe that some of the men in our kingdom need to get their fight back. Nehemiah 4.14, when Nehemiah is rebuilding those walls in 414, some guys come up and they try to interrupt the process. It's Sanballat, Tobiah, the Hornite, and then the Arabians and the Ashdodites and the Amorites. They all come to try to resist the work. And Nehemiah in 414, he looks at them, he said, and I look and I arose and I said to the nobles, the leaders, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. 
He says, remember the Lord our God, great and awesome, and fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives. Fight for your homes. I put that in your note because I want you to help me to read that. And I want you to grab hold of those notes and read that to the man next to you. Tell him, remember the Lord your God. Remember the Lord. Go ahead. Great and awesome is he. And tell him, fight for your brother. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives. Fight for your houses. Listen, a father is a mighty man who's willing to stay in the battle. And I think we need to get our fight back again. I really believe that. We need to get our fight back. I was preaching on divorce one Sunday in our church and how people ought to stay together and fight for their marriage, fight for their homes, and just shouldn't be so easy just to divorce their spouses. Unbeknownst to me, a lady in our church had brought her husband there, and it was one of the first Sundays he had come. And as I was preaching this, I didn't know that he had already filed divorce papers and said he was going to leave for no legitimate reason. He wasn't saved. She was in the church. He just said, I'm finished with this. I'm through. I'm out. And she said, well, at least come to church with me. And he said, I'm coming to church when I'm still out. And I'm preaching on divorce so tough. And this man comes in and he thinks his wife has called me up on the phone, told me he was going to be there. And I had crafted this sermon with him in mind. Would you look at the brother next to you and say, could it be the Holy Ghost? Go ahead, tell him, tell him. John, he thought I was there, Pastor. John, he thought I was there a whole week crafting a sermon for him. So he got mad. The more I preached, the madder he got. You ever see a black man turn red? Oh, he was mad. And when he came up to me and stepped to me, Pastor Ray, at the end of service, he came up and stepped to me and he started saying, I know first finger pointing. I know you. My wife called you, told you when I'm going. I said, I don't even know you, sir. Then he started getting all demonstrative. You're lying. I know she told you what's going on. Started getting all demonstrative. And then he stepped to me like, listen, I'll take you out. And I said, brother, you don't want to do that. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, I ain't one of those turn the other cheek Christians. <laughs> And then I told him this. I said, I'm still trying to work that one out. Look at the man next to you and tell him I'm still trying to work that out, too. I said, I'm still, try- I'm still trying to work that one out. Now, all of us have places where God's working on this. I'm still trying to work that one out. I said, brother, you, might, you, you don't want to do that. I said, because I'm not one of those turn the other G Christians. You, you want to reconsider that. Still trying to work that one out. Brother, backed down, backed off, walked on out. And brothers, I believe that sometimes you need to look at the devil and say, I'm tired of this. And you need to fight for your wife, fight for your children, fight for your homes, fight for your marriage, fight for your nations. And men, we need to get back in the battle again. I went into a uh, into a forum in our state. We have voted down same sex marriages in our state. But now through, uh, through judicial practice, they're trying to override what states have even said they don't want. Oh, come on now. And so the LBGTQ community start having all these forms, you know, lesbians, gays, bisexual, transvestites, and queers. That's what they call themselves now, the LBGTQ community. They added the Q, not me. 
I'm saying that, saying that for the CD. I don't want your church suit or anything else. They're saying that that's who they are. And they started having all these public forums on how they were going to get this overturned in the state of Ohio. And since I'm a citizen of the state of Ohio, I stepped up in the forum. And they looked at me and they said, one lady leaned over, she said, aren't you a pastor? And I said, yeah. She said, what you doing here? I said, I'm a citizen. I know y'all trying to pass some legislation. I came out to see what y'all talking about. And so they gave all their presentations about why all this happened and, you know, why everything ought to be going on. And I stood up and I started talking. And I started telling my points on why I was against this. First of all, creation. <laughs> Next of all, my faith. Next of all, it just ain't right. <laughs> and the moderator tried to silence me by saying now listen we will take anybody speaking in this public forum but we will not tolerate homophobic speech and she looked right at me and then she said reverend and I said homophobic I'm not homophobic I said a phobia is a fear I, then I looked at myself I ain't scared of none of y'all in here <laughs> Look at your neighbor and tell him, me neither, me neither, me neither. I ain't scared of you. I said, this ain't fear and hate speech. I said, I just don't agree. And I said, I thought I'd come to this forum to let you know there's another voice. It's kind of interesting. If you will stand fearless, other men are attracted to your fearlessness. Over the next few months, three men that are struggling with their sexual identity came to my office. And they came to my office. They said, we want to talk to you. And I said, okay, what do you want to talk about? After we prayed, how may I serve you? I want to talk about my struggle with sexual identity. I said, are you practicing or are you thinking? I'm just thinking. All three of them said. And then I asked them a question as we began. I said, why did you come to me? And they said, well, I talked to all my peers, and they endorsed what I'm feeling and telling me to go with my feeling. That's what media is telling people. Yeah, just go with your right. feelings. Then one guy told me, I even went and talked to an openly gay priest. And he said, he told me everything I wanted to hear. Then I said, well, why did you come to me? And here's what he said. He said, because I knew you would tell me the truth. And men, you and I, we need to be mighty men that stand in this battle with truth. And I said, okay, brother. And I did it with each one of those brothers. And then one lady that came in and I said, let's start at the beginning. I said, because when Jesus was asked about marriage and that was our form, marriage, I said, Jesus said in Matthew 19, have you never read in the beginning? He made them male and female. We went back to Genesis and said, what did Genesis say about marriage? And we went through the law and then we said, what did the law say about marriage? And we went through the prophets and Malachi even ends. We're talking about, man, you're putting away the wife of your youth and you've dealt treacherously. Went through the gospels, went through the epistles, went through the revelation where it says, these shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And all three of those men told me, I came to you because I want to inherit the kingdom of God. I don't want to die and go to hell. And three men left my office and said, so I guess I can't practice that and inherit the kingdom of God. We need to become warriors again, man. We need to be men that don't step down from the public forum. We need to be men that engage the public forum. One of my friends that recently went into eternity, uh, he was just a wild man. <laughs> and, and, and he told me, he said, man, I used to enter into all kind of public forums. Jennings, 
Jennings was a youth minister and thick with him, the Fellowship of International Word of Faith Ministries with Dr. Price. And Jennings died last year. Jennings told me, he said, man, he said, he said, Scales, you see I'm a light-skinned black man, don't you? And I said, yeah. He said, do you know in my city the Ku Klux Klan came through there? And he said they was passing out recruitment flyers. He said, so I went to the convention. He said, and signed up. And he said, and I sat right in the middle. And he said, I saw all these dudes looking over saying, isn't that a black dude? They said, no, that's probably just a tan white dude. And then he said, uh, he said, somebody came in and scooted next to me and said, hey, man, are you white? He said, no, I'm black. He said, man, what you doing in here? He said, well, I'm a believer in Jesus. I just came in here. I joined to see what y'all talking about. He said, because some of y'all brothers need to get saved, man. He was just bold as Jennings. He's just crazy. We need to get our fight back. Jennings, one of those dudes, he stood up in a public forum one time and said, I want to be here during the Antichrist because I want to get me a 357 in the news and I want to be taking out some of them Antichrist spirits. I said, brother, you're too wild for me. <laughs> Listen, you got to get your fight back. And to be a mighty warrior in God, there needs to be a little crazy in you. Now, my case, uh-oh, watch out, it got quiet. I'm going to help you get your crazy back. Look at this case study with a man named Gideon as we close. Because Gideon wanted to stay behind the scenes. And Gideon was a man that God takes and God gives him all of these guys for his team. He gives him 22,000 people in, jo in Judges 7-3. And then God said, you got too many to take on the Midianite. They've outnumbered them anyway. He reduces it to 10,000. And in Je Judges 7-3, then he reduces it. Uh, the 10,000. And then in Judges 7, 6, he reduces it to 300. And now they pursued the Midianites and God, after they pursue them, he tells them, man, I want you to go get the Amalekites. In Judges chapter 8 and verse 4, it says that when Gideon came to the Jordan, he and his 300 men who were with him crossed over. And then it says this, exhausted but still in pursuit. Man, I want you to know that's the way warriors have to think. I may be exhausted, but I'm still in pursuit. Look at the man next to you saying, I'm exhausted, but I'm still in pursuit. See, you need to stay even when you get tired. You need to keep on fighting. Even when you don't think you're going to make it, keep on fighting. Even when you think you're going down, Keep on fighting because mighty men stay in the battle even when they're exhausted. Friends, you and I, we need to stay in the fight. One of my characters that I watched when I was growing up was when Cassius Clay came out. and Then he turned into a guy named Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali said that he said fights had been kind of mediocre at that time. So he said he took a marketing plan from Pretty Boy, one of these Pretty Boy wrestling guys that was out there. He said, I used to see that guy talking about how pretty he was in his wrestling stuff. And he says, so I just got up and started talking about how pretty I was. <laughs> then he said, then I hired Bodine Brown. And Bodine Brown was a guy that stood in his ear and said, you pretty, you fast, he can't help me. And he would quote poetry in his ear. Ali was the first rapper, y'all know that. Float like a <laughs> butterfly, sting like a bee. You can't. Hit what you can't see. He knocked out Sonny Liston. I got the bear. Then Floyd Patterson said, I'll take him out. He's, I'm going to get the hair. <laughs> and man, I used to hear this guy talk all that junk. 
But after he got talk, got finished talking, he could fight. Talk is cheap. But man, you got to learn how to fight. And friends, when you're exhausted, you need to stay in pursuit. And friends, you and I, we need to be like that. We need to be exhausted, but still in pursuit. I want you to know that sometime in this fight, you say, man, it seems like every time we win one battle, there's another fight that talks about. Gideon was a reluctant leader, but he said, man, I'm exhausted, but I'm still in pursuit. Why do you need to stay in pursuit? Because the thing that you're going to win is greater than your tiredness. The thing that you're going to win is greater than anything that you've achieved before. Why do you need to stay in a fight? Because in our nation and in our city and in our church and in our time, there's still unfinished business. Listen, why do you need to stay in the fight? Because when you stay in the fight and you win, even when you're tired, God gets all the glory because you and I know that we didn't have the strength to do all this is. You see, the reason that Gideon could be tired and staying in pursuit, and I close with this, God called him a mighty man of valor in, in Judges 6, 12. Gideon is in a wine press, and he's threshing wheat in a wine press, and God comes to him and says, hey, you mighty man of valor. Gideon looks around and says, wait a minute now, you couldn't be talking to me. He said, my family is from Manasseh, the smallest tribe around. And then he said, my clan is the least clan in that tribe. And he said, and my family is the weakest family in that clan. And he said, and I'm the least likely one in the family. This guy had a poor self-image. And God comes to him and says, you're a mighty man of valor. I don't care what battles you lost in days past. You and I need to stay in the fight. I've been bullied one time in my life. And one day my father came to me and he said, why that boy bringing you home in a headlock every day? I said, we just playing. <laughs> and my dad looked at me and said, don't let me see you come home like that no more. This boy would catch me at Kelton and Miller and walk me all the way to my house in a headlock. <laughs> and one day my dad was out on the porch and he said, what you doing out there? I said, we just playing. He said, don't let me see you walking home like that no more. And when we got the Miller and Mooberry that day, I told that boy, let me go. Because I could see my daddy out on the porch. I have more fear of God than I have a man. And I'll tell you what, I didn't know if I could beat this guy or not. But I knew one thing, he was going to know he had been in a fight. I started biting. I know boys ain't for the bite. I bit him in his side. I started swinging and kicking. I kicked anything that was split and anything that was standing. <laughs> And I started swinging and kicking before I know the bully was down on the ground crying. And he knew he had been in a fight. I took that lesson when we moved from Mooberry, when they built the freeway and took our house out. We moved up into the, another neighborhood that was 90% white, about 10% black. And these big white boys came in and said, get out the neighborhood, nigga, get out the neighborhood. And David Swindler was the leader of them. And David Swindler came out and said, I want half your sandwich every day at lunch. Well, you can see as big as I am, I ain't giving them no food. <laughs> now, you could take my books, you could take my pencil, you could take my pencil and my paper, but you ain't getting no sandwich. <laughs> and I remember it was me and my brother and Henry Dunson and Diane Dunson. And Swindler was going to get a half a sandwich from everybody. And I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk to school together, and we're going to go home together. And one day Swindler came out and said, y'all didn't give me no sandwich after lunch. 
and he re reached back to swing on me, and I said, get him! All four of us jumped on him, got him down. We was kicking, the girls was kicking, my brother and I and Dunson was, was, was punching and carrying on, and was swinging, oh, I stopped. So I said, you, you want a sandwich now? No, no, I'm gonna leave you alone. <laughs> and it got out in the school that, that David Swindler had been beaten up by, by these little black kids. They called us colored kids. And here's what the rumor was in the school. Don't mess with them little colored kids. They don't fight fair. All of them jump on you. Their mama, their cousin, <laughs> Mookie, Ray Ray, Boo, <laughs> Bebe's babies, all of them. They go get their family. That's what you and I need to do as a kingdom. Man, when one of us in the fight, all of us in the fight. And they learn to leave these little colored kids alone because we don't fight fair. Look at your neighbor and say, we don't fight fair either. I want you to know as a mighty man, you need to get your fight back. I may not be able to take you out by myself, but I got Ray. I may not be able to take me and Ray, may not be able to take you out, so we go get the Puerto Ricans because you know they crazy. Oh, no. <laughs> Me and Ray and the Puerto Ricans can't take you out. We'll do a poll and say, who's carrying today? Who's carrying today? <laughs> I know you in here. I'll come, I'm prophetic. I'll come point you out. No, I ain't going to bust you out today. Because we're better together, aren't we? We're better together. And friends, as a father, as a father, as a minister, you are the chief worship leader in your home. As a father, as a man of God, you are the chief resource for spiritual guidance. And friends, as a father in the home, as a mighty man of God, as a mighty man, you are the one that stands guardian for your family. As a mighty man, as a mighty man, and as a father, fight for your marriage, fight for your family, fight for your kids. And if you and I will stand in those places, then man, I am the minister in my home. I am the man of God in my home. I am the mighty man in my home. When your wife introduces you, she'll say, let me introduce you to my man. Oh, I love that kind of term. <laughs> Helps you stick your chest out a little bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Help you flex a little bit, you know. <laughs> and we need to get our fight back. God doesn't need marshmallow men now. He doesn't even need macho men. He needs mighty men. Because this world right now is going down. Pastor John described it last session. We are in the last of the last days. Things are waxing worse and worse. How do we stand? We stand as mighty men. Here I stand, I can do no more. And friends, if we'll stand, the world will come to find out why we're standing. And it will present an opportunity for witness. I want to pray for us today because today we have looked at fatherhood. We looked at a father as a man, dominion, a father as a mentor, pass it on, a father as a model, create something that needs to be entertained, imitated, a father as a minister, chief worship leader, a father as a man of God, chief spiritual God, and a father as a mighty man doing justice and standing and fighting for your marriage, fight for your home, and fight for your family and for your children. In which of these last three areas would you like prayer? Do you need prayer as a minister? Lord, have a brother pray for you then that you would be that chief worship leader. Do you have, need prayer as a man of God? 
that you would be the chief resource and understand what God is up to in the panoramic view of God. Maybe you need prayer that God help you get your fight back because we don't fight after natural weapons anymore. Never wrestle against flesh and blood. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty to God, to the pulling down of strongholds. I want to pray for you. Then I want to give you a few minutes to pray with each other. Let's pray. Father, we just come together to pray. And we pray today because we know that, Father, we are to be the minister as a father. We are to pass on the fact that we are the chief worship leader. That we are in the home getting to know you more personally and intimately on a daily basis. That we are the man of God. We are the chief spiritual resource and we understand the eternal purposes of God. You want to bring many sons to glory. And I bring these men before you because we are fathers as mighty men. We are fighting like Gideon and we're fighting like Nehemiah for our marriage, for our families and for our children. And Father, help our men to get their fight back. And Father, even when they're exhausted, let them still be in pursuit. And Father, once we achieve what you have called us to achieve, we will achieve something great. We will finish unfinished business and you will get all the glory. We thank you for this now. And we praise you for it now in Jesus name. And all the men of God said, Amen. Amen.